Well, uh, after a couple of weeks of thinking about John's gospel from about 30,000 feet, as we've thought about uh, John's gospel in a more introductory way over these last couple of weeks, this morning we're going to do the exact opposite of being up at 30,000 feet. We're going to get into the text itself and we're going to look at just verse 1 this morning. Uh, so we're going from way up high to, to way down low, if you like. Um, I, I had initially attempted to, to do the first few verses. No way. No way. We're just going to do verse 1. Uh, but but it, will, it will repay our time to take just verse 1 in, in its three huge statements about Jesus. In fact, it's, just, it's overwhelming even to consider all that's here. I, I've been overwhelmed by it in, our study, in my study this week, um, trying, trying to just put, put this together. It's, it's such glorious truth about Jesus. So in the beginning was the Word. That's huge. Right? And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Three enormous statements about the significance of the identity of Jesus Christ. Uh, one commentator by the name of Barrett, who's, who's actually regularly quoted by many commentators on John. He's a very uh, helpful scholar of, of John's work. He, he makes this comment about verse 1. He said, John intends that the whole of his gospel shall be read in light of this verse. If this be not true, the book is blasphemous. So if John 1.1 1, 1, be not true, the book is blasphemous. In other words, Barrett's making the point that what's here in verse 1 is so important and so central to a proper understanding of what John is going to be telling us about Jesus that if this verse isn't true, the whole book of John, the whole gospel of John itself is profane. Right? But, but of course, what's here in verse 1 is true. And because it's so central, we are going to take some time to think through it well. Uh, the scriptures we know, they're given for our encouragement. We can be encouraged by, by John 1.1. 1, 1. The scriptures, they're given to us for our correction and warning. There's actually some warning for us here in John 1.1 1, 1 as we think about this. The function of God's word comes to us in a very full way as we, as we consider the truth that's here. And we, and we anticipate that as we, start in, as we start in on these things. We remember John's purpose for writing the whole gospel from chapter 20. We've talked about this a number of times. But you remember how John says all the way near the end of his gospel in chapter 20 that all of these things have been written so that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, so He's the Anointed One, the Son of God, and that by believing in Him we can have life in His name. So we know John's purpose statement. We know why John is writing this gospel. He's saying to us that without a proper comprehension and trust in the Lord Jesus, there is no hope of true life. But of course, with Christ, there is hope of eternal life. There's absolute hope of eternal life. And so as John allows that paradigm to, to govern his, his, uh, ex, his explanation of who Jesus is, we take heart as we come to each point of his gospel along the way, realizing that he has this belief priority in mind for us. He's, he's guiding us towards what truly leads to life in the name of the Lord Jesus. And, and, and we need that. We live in a time when life is claimed to be offered through so many different mediums. Uh, life is found in, in maybe in this pastime and cultivating that kind of extracurricular activity. Or, or life is found in, in that group of friends. Or, or life is found if you can gain acceptance with this particular entity. Life's found in that financial position or, or maybe with that new partner. Or, or life's found in a program, whatever it may be. But, but we know true life, the life we really need, the life that transcends the difficulties, the sorrows, the sadness of our imminent frame, of our time in this world, that kind of true life is bigger than all of those things can offer. That kind of true life is ultimately only found in the person of Christ and what He does in His saving and resurrecting work. 
And so as we come to John's gospel, we come each section along the way anticipating that he's directing our attention toward this belief in an ultimate life that is found only through what is found in Jesus. And so each step along the way, we're, we're constantly reminding ourselves of that. And that's certainly true as, as, as he starts his explanation of who Jesus is here in John chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, really, John 1 to 18, so the whole section that I just read for us, is often just thought of as the prologue of John. And all through that prologue, John is primarily doing two things. He's telling us, this is who Jesus is, and this is why he came. Identity and mission. This is who Jesus is. This is why he came. Back and forth, all through uh, this prologue, that's going to be what John is focusing on in different ways and from different angles. Uh, But right here, John starts with this primary statement about Jesus' identity. So, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So, uh, we're we're going to work our way through this today. Again, maybe you even have it committed to memory. Uh, Maybe you do just because I've already said it a bunch of times. Uh, But it always helps to have our Bibles open as we study. We just want to be in that habit. So even if it's a a familiar word to us today, you can turn your Bible on on your phone or have it open there in front of you. It's always good to to have the text before us. Uh, Okay, so so as we get into things today, uh, we, we have to begin by saying something about the way John begins with his identification of Jesus. So so it's no small thing that three times in one verse, John refers to Jesus by this this title, the Word. The Word, or in Greek, John is referring to Jesus as the Logos, which is just the Greek word for word, Logos. Uh, In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. Uh, so, So three references in a rather short span of phrases to Jesus as the Word. And, and this is something that has got, gotten a lot of attention uh, down through the centuries because while John writes as a Jewish man about a Jewish man, we can, we can say that, uh, John does write into a context of the wider Greco-Roman world. And in the Greco-Roman world, especially at this time, the term logos was a relatively loaded term. So for readers of John at this time, especially those who had some amount of education, the term logos would have caused them to perk up and listen because it was a very philosophical and and metaphysical reference uh, that the the word was attached to. In fact, going going back about 500 years before Jesus was born, uh, in Greek philosophy, the logos was associated with a a kind of principle of, of transformation that ordered the cosmos in Greek thinking a kind of logical force of, of creative energy associated with, with Zeus, for example. The Logos was by Zeus's side as this entity of reason that held the world together. Uh, other, other Greek philosophers used the term Logos to speak of God's ideal world as opposed to the real world with all its brokenness and, and, and those kinds of things. Um, at a more personal level, the Logos was, was thought of as the spark of universal reason that resides in all people in Greek thought. So, so, so it's a principle that, that must be maintained in all of us in order to, uh, to, to keep on in a framework of human integrity. The Logos is kind of this, this philosophical center that keeps us moored as humans. Right? In, in Greek thought, Logos was a term loaded with philosophical underpinnings. And then, of course, in Jewish thought, uh, because the Greco-Roman world influenced Judaism as it, as it spread throughout the known world at the time, so in Jewish thought, Logos had become adopted philosophically in some cases as well. Uh, in, in some Jewish forms of thinking, the term had been brought in and connected with God's wisdom. So, so Logos is a kind of craftsmanship principle 
uh, exercised by God in the creation of the universe, uh, very similar to how the Greeks thought of it as a principle of reason that held everything together. The, the, the Jewish mind co-opted that a bit and tied it in with places like Proverbs 8 where we read that the, the wisdom of God was like a craftsman by his side when the world was made and, and, and uh, Logos was connected with wisdom, Jewish wisdom, literature, things of that nature. Uh, so, so John uses a loaded term here um, and, and probably at one level, uh, through this term, John is communicating the, the message that, that, that if you really want to think about first principles that hold the universe and hold humanity together, if you really want to think in those kind of categories, let me tell you about the true logos. And let me tell you, not, not about a, a philosophical idea, but let's begin with this person of Jesus. And no doubt, John was probably subtly pointing that out as he was, as he was beginning his gospel. Uh, however, we do have to be careful how, how much we read into this because good scholarship agrees that we can't make, make too, too, too much of John's use of this term. Uh, for example, one, one scholar makes the point, he's, he says this, to what extent John himself was aware of these different uses of the term is not our concern and almost impossible to know with certainty. So John throws this term out. It's a loaded term. No doubt it would catch people's attention. It would direct them in, in the ways they're thinking metaphysically, philosophically, about the existence of the world, about the existence of life, and all of these things. But in all of that, John actually communicates to us with a level of plainness that drives things to a very center point of revelation as we think about God's interaction with humanity. And John does that just in the way he begins at the beginning. So you notice just the language here, in the beginning, in the beginning. And those who are familiar with the scriptures, uh, we, we know where that phrase immediately drives us. It, it doesn't drive us in the direction of contemplative philosophy or, or musings or anything of that nature. It drives us back to Genesis 1.1, where we read that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right? Back to John 1.1, in the beginning, and we would expect God but what does John say? In the beginning was the Logos. In the beginning was the Word. Immediately, the start of John's introduction to Jesus ties us back to the beginning of God's revelation of His creative and saving purposes in the world. And as we think back about those first words in, in, in Genesis, as we think back to that familiar passage, we can see how this is tied to the revelatory work of God because in the beginning, that God created the heavens and the earth. And as we read on very soon in that passage, what do we read? Well, we read that He spoke. But His Word goes forth. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And that, that creative, revelation, word-centered theme is what John picks up on even in the next verses, uh, talking about Jesus being the beginning and all things being made through Him and so on, which we'll talk more about at length next time. But here at the start, we get the sense of what John is doing with this use of the concept of the, of the word or logos, and that John's not speaking first and foremost about a, a philosophical concept or an idea in the mind, a, a principle of reason, something that holds nature together, as some impersonal entity. Instead, John's concerned with the performative revelation of the living God as introduced to us in the person of Christ in this climactic event of Christ coming into the world and revealing God's salvation purposes, which we have been anticipating historically down through the ages as humanity. So, so whether, whether we're reading Psalm 33, 6, you know, where the psalmist says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Or whether we're reading something like Psalm 107, where, where the Lord sent forth His word and healed them and delivered them from destruction. 
that we're reading about God's creation, we're reading about God's salvation, all being affected through His Word. As we come to understand the person of the Lord Jesus, whatever we're reading in the Bible about God's revelatory Word, when we read that in the beginning was the Word, we're meant to be thinking immediately about God's saving, creating, redeeming, instructing, climaxing revelation, climaxing revelation of Himself that is now there for us in the person of Christ. So as if John is saying, he's given this nudge to the wider society in general, Logos. Okay, we could talk about Logos. Right? This imminent principle of reason that holds the universe together, the internal reality that directs the morality of our human life, all of these kinds of things. But you really want to talk about life. You really want to talk about what holds all things together. You really want to talk about craftsmanship of the universe. You really want to talk about eternal principles. Let me drive you not to a, not to a philosophical thought, not to something that we might muse and write about. Let me drive your attention to the personal reality of, this, of, of, of Jesus Christ. So John is adjusting our view of these things as he uses this kind of term. Here we are. God's revelation of himself is climaxing, not in philosophical thought, but in Jesus. And just to make sure we get the exact magnificence of, of not what, but who this word is in John 1, John actually gives us three things he wants us to know about the Logos right away. We don't have to wonder where John is going with this. He makes it very clear for us. In the beginning was the word. So Jesus is the revelation of the living God who pre-exists all things. That's the Logos. And the Word was with God. Okay, Jesus is, is the revelation of the living God who exists in God's eternal presence and fellowship. That's the Logos. And the Word was, uh, the word was God Himself, which, which of course is huge in that Jesus is the revelation of the living God, is in fact God Himself. So, so, so Jesus is the Logos, but this Logos is a revelatory expression of, of who God actually is. Here, here we have God in the flesh come, on, come among us, as John will say later on. And, and so just as a point of application here, when it comes to the foundations of our faith, we're, we're reminded that, uh, that we're not, first of all, consumed by philosophical or theoretical notions. First and foremost, as John gives priority here, while we recognize that we live in a world where philosophical, theoretical musings, all these notions abound. I mean, we're surrounded by, by TED Talks and podcasts and, and Twitter rants and all of these kinds of things. While all of these things develop a framework, they develop a worldview in a sense uh, for us as we go out and navigate the world, ultimately, those kinds of philosophical realities are not central to what it means to find life. Those philosophical realities may inform us to a certain degree. They may entertain us to another degree. But more than anything else, what we need, John is saying, is to direct our attention not to an idea, but to a person. We need to know the person of Christ. We need to understand who He is. We need to be believing in Him and trusting in His name in order to find life. And so it's just a call for us back from maybe those things that can distract us so easily. All the words, all the musings, all the, all the other logoses around. Right? John says, here's the true principle of reason that holds life together. And it's not stoic thought. It's not Philo's philosophy. It's not the thought experiments of our contemporary time. But it's the person of Jesus Christ. So there's that. John uses this term logos purposefully, not to philosophically twist us up. But, but to make sure we see the revelation of God is climaxing and life is coming in this person. And with that in mind, we then move forward in the ways that John helps us understand the significance of the identity of this person. These three ways now that are, that are broken down for us in, in verse 1. 
And so we'll, we'll work through those here. If you're looking there, again, the first thing we're told is that in the beginning was the Word. So to start with, John is meaning to communicate to us something of the pre-existence, something of the eternality of, of, of Jesus, of Christ, of God the Son. Right? Again, with this language, we're immediately drawn back into the creation story. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We're going back to the beginning here. But actually with John, we're going back to before the beginning, aren't we? It's interesting to note the verb form that John uses here. We have to draw it out with more English words to make literal sense of it. But John, John is literally saying in this, in this section, he says, In the beginning, the Word was already being. In the beginning, the Word was already being. So, so to quote Bruce Milne, he says, How, However far back we set the beginnings of things, and whatever model we employ to describe that origin... Jesus was present as the presiding Lord of that moment and event. Or to quote Athanasius, there was never a time when he was not. So Christ is introduced to us here in categories that transcend all time and space and material elements, anything that's made up in the created order, that's created in, in the world around us. He was already eternally being when there was a beginning which for us is genuinely mind-blowing. You just take a moment and you try to imagine existing outside the created orders of time and space. What is it like to be before time? Try to conceive of that. Can you even put your mind there? Our finite minds can't even go there. We can think back a couple hundred years. We can think back a couple thousand years even, or depending on how we slice things, some may think hard enough to go back thousands and thousands and millions and millions of years and more. But time-space history, in all those cases, gives us parameters that our minds can at least frame in terms of meaning. Right? If I say a million years ago, that's a fixed referent, and while it's huge, we can grasp a piece of that. But no matter how far back we can go, no matter what model of understanding we adopt for the conception of history and the passage of time, when you get back to the furthest historical point that's measured in, in seconds and minutes and hours and days, when we get back as far back as back can go, we must profess that the Word pre-existed all possible measurements of moments. So to know Jesus is to know the one who comes to us from the un unquantifiable reaches of the eternal. And as massive as that is, it actually serves a very uh, significant purpose for us in knowing this truth about Christ. Among other things, first of all, it helps make sense of a creator-creature distinction, which we're going to talk about at length next time. But what this also does, what thinking about the eternality of Christ does, is it leaves us in this worshipful position of recognizing His grandeur, His worthy glory. We're called by John's gospel to believe in Jesus. And even as we just think about belief in general, trust in general, that's something that can be a very difficult category for us, just generally speaking. Because for us in our present moment, trust is not a thing that we offer lightly. You know, so someone tells us something, and we may appreciate that word from them. We may appreciate their opinion, right? We, we may take their, their thoughts into consideration. We may ponder what a person says to us, going back and forth on whether or not that word might apply to us, it might not. Uh, but, but, but all of that is because we are on equal footing as humans, aren't we? Right? 
We weigh what others say wisely because we are all thinking and existing and seeing and learning and experiencing and moving on the same finite human plane. So somebody has, has, has a particular directive for me, I'm going to take that into account and I'm going to mull that over. I'm going to consider, is that truly good? Is it, is it not good? Is that something I'm going to walk with or not? Right? And it's fine to come to other humans like that. We should come to our human interactions like that. But that's not how we come to Jesus. We don't come to the eternal logos. We, we don't come to Christ as one who is basically on the same footing as us. And so we will take what he says under advisement and go on with our lives. Maybe we go with his word, maybe we don't. That's not how it is. We come to Christ, we hear his word. And in so doing, we hear the word of the one who pre-exists all existence. He's grander than creation and time. Even setting aside that he's all-knowing, all-good, all-powerful, ordering the end from the beginning, even setting aside all of that, we see the extraordinary glory that's reflected in the fact that his word speaks to us from an eternity of past into an eternity of, of future that we can't even comprehend. His word comes to us from this place of extraordinary preeminence. You know, you know, it's like when we have, when we have our, our young kids, maybe the three-year-old, and uh, they have the favorite toy, it's the, it's the red truck. And somebody accidentally sits on the red truck and the red truck breaks. And, and for that three-year-old, it can genuinely be, genuinely be the worst day of their life to date. Right? Lots has happened, but I've never had a day so bad as the day that red truck broke. Genuinely, in the three years of their life, it's very possible that that is their worst possible imaginable day. And we look at that as parents, and we have to say to them, don't we? We have to say, well, you know, when you get more experience, as you get older, you'll realize that, that there are bad days, and this just, quite frankly, isn't one of them. Right? There are hard things, and this, quite frankly, isn't really going to be one of those things that, that, is, that is so hard in life. And why are we able to say that? Well, because we're older than 20 minutes old, aren't we? And we've had these experiences, and so we have this perspective to draw from. Think about Christ and his word to us. Think about the eternality of the Lord Jesus, uh, the fact that he not only ordered the whole universe, created all things, ordered the end from the beginning, all of that, all his omniscience and perfection and holiness, but just think about the fact that he's the one who calls us to a certain kind of sexual fidelity. Well, who are you to be speaking about this? I'm three years old. I know so many things. I can go in my own way and be fine. We have to reference the fact that Jesus speaks to us from the eternality of his end from the beginning existence. And he says, this is good. He's like the parent who has to come along and say, I know they might think this, but you're just, you're just not right. right. You just don't have the perspective to see it. Christ speaks to us from the perspective of eternity and he calls us into this life of, of discipleship and faithfulness. He says things like to love others is better than to constantly focus on receiving. He says things like to take up your cross and follow me is actually to find life. Losing your life in that way is actually to find life in that way. He comes to us and he calls us to things that seem so contrary to who we are, but then we remember who's speaking to us. It's this one who has pre-existed all existence. And how in the world could we possibly think that our wisdom could ever exceed his? So he says, here's, here's what it looks like to live a life that's whole and flourishing. Here's, a, here's what it looks like to live a life that's, that's free, a life that's trusting, a life that ultimately leads uh, to life beyond death. All of these things, Christ calls us to that, and he'll call us to that all through John's gospel. Why do we listen? Well, for a whole sermon list of reasons, we, we listen to Jesus, but here's one of them. He's older than us. He pre-exists all existence. And from that perspective of eternal wisdom, he speaks. And so we take that into account as we come to this gospel. In the beginning was the word. And then we move on to the, from there, uh, speaking about his eternality, we move on from there to speak about 
the, what we could call maybe the, the presence of the Word or the fellowship of the Word. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was with God. So, so we're meant to see something of the personhood of Christ being in, in active and intimate fellowship and communion with God. This kind of fellowship that Christ shared with the Godhead is something that actually comes up in a number of different ways throughout John's Gospel. Uh, twice it comes up in John chapter 10, where we read things like Jesus saying, I and the Father are one, you know, or, or, or uh, the Father is in me and I'm in the Father. There's this language of intimate fellowship between God the Son and God the Fellow uh, and, God the, and God the Father that is, that is permeating in, in John's Gospel. And, and, and all in all, ultimately, it's indicating this unique fellowship that's shared in the persons of the Trinity. There's this, there's this eternal fellowship that exists. And in John's Gospel, there's great purpose for us in knowing this truth about Christ from the very beginning in terms of His intimate relationship within the Godhead. Because the fellowship that God the Son enjoys with God the Father isn't just a truth to be taken in, but it's actually a paradigm for us that we're called to emulate in our own lives. In John 17, Jesus is praying for us as His disciples, and He says, may they be one, may my disciples be one, may they be unified, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. So Jesus' eternal intimate relationship with God is not just a matter of theological and, and essence of being kind of truth, but in John it serves as a paradigm to define our own fellowship as Christian believers. Last week, we talked about the individual focus in John's gospel, and we're going to spend time on that as we go through the gospel. We'll see it uh, come up again and again. We'll have lots of occasions for that. But like we said last week, individuality in our belief and obedience to Christ as Christian believers in no way indicates isolation for us as Christian believers. We're called to be in ongoing fellowship and unity as God's people, and why is that? Well, ultimately, that's because it reflects God's own relational existence. Going back to Genesis 1 again, we're made how? We're made in the image of God. Right? To function in our truly humanitarian existence means that we're called to be unified in the community of God's people. Isolation is not a divine characteristic. The Word was with God. And as Jesus is going to make clear in this gospel record, we're called to live in unified community, loving one another in harmonious gospel purpose together. And that's not just a Jesus commanded us to be together so we do it thing. That's a this is what it means to be made in the image of God as human beings thing. This is what God does. A while back, I think the article was dated May 2nd. It was a CNN article. Uh, Julia, Julia sent it to me. And, and uh, the article's tagline was this, Surgeon General lays out framework to tackle loneliness and mend the social fabric of our nation. Isn't that something? The Surgeon General is going to be issuing directives to deal with the loneliness that exists in our country right now. The Surgeon General. So the article went on to give this quote. It said, in recent years, about one in two adults in America reported experiencing loneliness. And that was before the COVID-19 pandemic cut off so many of us from friends, loved ones, and support systems. So even before COVID, 50% of American humans were lonely. As humans, we, we're, we're, we're sorrowful if we're alone. And why is that? Well, it's because being alone is not human. It's not, it's not what it means to be human because it's not what it means to be made in the image of God who exists in eternal fellowship within the unity of the Trinity. 
the article, it went on to say, loneliness acts like hunger or thirst, a signal our body sends us when we need something for survival. Survival. That this loneliness thing is put in the most primitive, essential to human life terms possible. Right? It's a survival thing for us as people. And as we come to a fuller understanding of who this Jesus is, we see that he existed in the eternal fellowship of the Godhead, a fellowship that, that he then calls us into as his disciples because it's how we have been created and then through his cross recreated to live. And this doesn't flow out of anything other than the identity of Christ and the Trinity in and of that relationship uh, and, and that reality. So it's possible for us in our Christian life to think of fellowship, and we emphasize it, we talk about it. It's possible for us to think of fellowship in categories of mere obligation and duty. You know, oh, we're supposed to be together, and I wasn't, I feel kind of guilty now. Or it's possible to think of fellowship as mere preservation. You know, if I'm not with God's people, I'll falter, I'll... I'll tumble into sin, I'm weak in that sense. And of course, for us as disciples of Jesus, Christian community is an obligation, and it does function for our preservation. But before all of that, we have to see that our fellowship is first and foremost dead center of what it means to be truly human. Our unified fellowship is what it means to be uh, to, to image God Himself. Christ was with God, we're called to be in fellowship like the eternal Logos was in fellowship. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Which again, we need to know that if we're going to make sense of John's Gospel. This fellowship thing is going to become important. Like Jesus, we're called into it. So we've had pre-existence or eternality. We've had presence or fellowship. And now we'll just do, we'll do one more here. The last one, we'll say something about the Word's personhood. The Word's personhood. Jesus' personhood. So the Word was God. Uh, it's a direct statement here about, about the fact that Christ is, is fully God. Remember uh, the disciple Thomas, a uh, text we studied over Easter. He's going to make that confession at the end of, of John's gospel. He sees Jesus finally for who he is. And what does he say? He says, my Lord and my God. Jesus doesn't correct him. Throughout the gospel, Jesus will have his I am sayings. Remember how we talked about that last week? I am, taking that Old Testament uh, covenantal name for God, Yahweh, I am who I am. Jesus takes that to himself as a self-identifier. Jesus references himself as God. And, and as amazingly big as this is, with our Bibles open, as we get into John's gospel, we should be expecting this about God's anointed one. We should be expecting this divine reality in the coming one that God promised. So, for example, in Psalm 45, the psalmist is speaking about the Messiah, and he makes this otherwise strange statement where he says, Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. The psalmist is making distinctions within the, the, the being of God. God, your God, has anointed you. Or Isaiah 43, which is just majestic. It's, it's one of those, thus says the Lord passages. Listen to what God says in Isaiah 43. He says, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant, whom I have chosen, now you remember the servant in Isaiah, the suffering servant, the, ultimately that Messiah figure who's going to bear our sins, bear our iniquities, save us, all of those things. He says, you're my witness, declares the Lord, and my servant, whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Who's the servant of God who's coming? It's God who's coming, Isaiah says. It's amazing. The suffering servant is, is God. And the Word was God. 
Now, now Jesus is fully man, and we'll be able to talk about that at length when we get down to things like verse 14, where the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Right? But before that, we just have to be very clear on this main point. The Word was God. The Word was God. Now, we, 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 have, we have to do some justice to this. Maybe you've had the experience of having some, somebody come to your door, Jehovah's Witness come knocking on your door. They're, they're very friendly. They're very friendly and nice people. Uh, but one of the first things they like to talk about how John is, is how John 1, 1 is a bad translation in our, in our Bible. Um, so they'll come to the door and they'll say things like, there's not, a, there's not a definite article in the Greek, so it's not that the word was God, but it's the word was a God, is how they'll translate it in their New World translation. Right? Like Jesus had some God-like qualities about him. Jesus was God-ish. Right? But, but he wasn't actually co-equal, co-eternal with God the Father. And then we won't even say anything about the view of the Holy Spirit and all, and all of that. Uh, but maybe you've had that, that experience with, with Jehovah's Witnesses. They come to your door. They're, they're very nice. But they say this to you about how your Bible is inaccurate in this way. And then we could speak about this at length. But here's the thing. They're wrong. Um, th th there isn't a definite article in, in Greek. That's true. So there's not the equivalent of the word. What we would have in English as the word the there. Like the word was the God. That's not there in Greek. So in Greek, it could, be, it could be open to the translation, the word was a God. It could be open to that translation. However, if we want to get really technical in Greek, the definite predicate nominative does not usually take the article when preceding the linking verb. There you go. You just have to tell them that when you come to the door. The definite predicate nominative it does not take a definite article when it precedes the linking verb. Everybody knows that. Right? We, read our, we read our Greek New Testament, and that's just the way Greek goes. So, so, so there you go, and, and we have that. We're done standing at the door, and, and, and if we want to get technical, we can say that to those people. But, of course, we're probably not going to do that. Instead, you can just say something like, okay, then, why does Jesus call himself I am? Why does he take the name of God to himself from the Old Testament? Because Jesus is calling himself God. So whatever we do with John 1, 1, you've got a problem with the fact that either Jesus is lying in the rest of this or he really is God. Right? We could go somewhere like that and, and deal with the, 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 the door st step problem. Um, but the Jehovah's Witnesses, they, they promote an old Arian heresy that denies the deity of Jesus in part because, because they do bad Greek exegesis. And I know we, we can get down in the, Greek, in the weeds with this kind of thing, but, but this, this really does matter. The Word was God. Here's why it matters. Here's why it matters. Because when we commit to a true belief in Jesus, there's salvation there. When we succumb and commit to false teaching about Jesus, we are deceived and believing in a false Christ who cannot save. It's as simple as that. And the Jesus of the Bible is God. And, and here's the thing. Jesus has to be human to identify with us in our need, but not just that. Jesus has to be God if he's really going to shoulder the eternal penalty that our sins require. He has to be God for there to be a gospel. Right? So take Psalm 47, for example. Listen to what the psalmist says. Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. Put that in simple terms. Mere man can't save man because we can't pay the sin price of man. Right? So, so if you do not have Jesus as God, you do not have Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world because no divine Christ, no power, no big enough power for salvation. Mere humanity cannot pay the price for humanity's sin. He has to be God for there to be the good news of salvation. But of course, with Jesus, the Word who is God, well, there's full salvation, pleasures at His right hand forevermore, and all of those things because He is God. 
Now, that, that does start to get a bit disconcerting. We, we do wonder maybe why John would leave language like this that could throw people off and get them all tangled up in a, in a heresy situation. Why, why, why did John say it like this then, right? Uh, why would John speak in this way without the definite article? Why, why not just say Jesus is the God, use the definite article, save us all a lot of time at the front door? Well, John's purposefully careful. There's, there is good purpose here. We have to say this. Again, we're, we, we need to have these, 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 these firm pillars in our minds of what is true belief about Jesus. That's John's whole point here. We need to believe about Jesus, about Jesus accurately. And here's the thing. Je- Jesus, uh, while Jesus is God, Jesus does not make up the entirety of the Godhead, even though Jesus is entirely God. Now, that is like, Christian orthodoxy right down the middle. We have to have that firm reality fixed in our mind. Jesus is entirely God, but he does not make up the entirety of God. Okay? We need that distinction. But we have to be able to say that in order to bring what Scripture reveals about the Trinitarian nature of God into proper perspective. How, how does the Westminster Shorter Catechism summarize it? We remember this. Are there more gods than one is the question. Answer, No. No, there's but one and only living and true God. There's one God. Okay, next question, how many persons are there in the Godhead? Well, there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Jesus is entirely God, but he does not make up the entirety of God. The entirety of the one God is the triune Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So John can't say Jesus is the God. That would be too narrow in terms of properly defining the Trinity. Jesus is entirely God, but Jesus is not the entirety of God. Again, these things matter. These things matter. The Jehovah's Witnesses bring their arguments against the godness of Jesus. That's a representation of, of, that, of that old heresy. In our own day, you can, you can watch cable preachers or read books that put forward other things like uh, monarchianism, it's modalism, uh, these kinds of things. Uh, this, was, this was the shack all those years ago. Everybody's all worked up about that. That, but that was modalism. The TV preacher T.D. Jakes, he falls into some of this stuff with oneness Pentecostalism as a kind of modalism, uh, but, but where the distinct members of the Trinity are not recognized, uh, but instead this God being manifests itself in three different ways. That's another, that's another heresy that comes about, right? Um, but, but, but it's all stuff that the early church condemned, and ultimately it's demonic in leading people away from the truth, and it cycles back through history, so we need to know about it. But here's the thing, why does all this matter? Why does all this matter? Well, it all matters because John is writing to us in a careful and profound way so that we can accurately be believing so that we can have life in his name. Because to believe in a false Christ is to not be saved. To believe in a true Christ is to find salvation. To actively subscribe to beliefs that are contrary to the truth leaves a person outside the saving work of Christ. Now, we're not talking about growing in our understanding. I've told you about my, my good friend who he was a Christian for a year before he realized Jesus was God, walking through his high school with his friend who was telling him, and he said, he didn't even know. Of course, he knew when he was excited about it, when he was told. But it's not like we're speaking here about growing in our understanding of who God is. Here we're talking about actively subscribing to things that are contrary to the truth of who God is, and that leaves us in a place, not in a, not in a place of salvation, but in a place of condemnation. We just have to be able to say that. We have to be able to say that. Some of you know how I was up at a friend's memorial in Seattle a while back. He was, he was a practicing Jehovah's Witness who was absolutely committed to his views about Jesus. And we had conversations. I even, I even went so far as to tell him that the definite predicate nominative does not usually take the article and proceed in the linking verb. 
He didn't didn't care about that. Um, but 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 I told you, you know, Jesus is God. We tried to work through that, and he and he simply didn't believe. As you know, I was up there recently. He died two months ago in a diving accident in a state of judgment instead of a state of grace because he committed to a false Christ. And that's horrifically saddening. We need to understand the truth of who Jesus is and we need to be able to say, we need to be able to say we have to be able to understand the truth of who Jesus is if we're going to find salvation. What is John's point? We need to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him we can have life in his name. We need the right name. We need the right Christ. And so John comes to us with this truth, and as timeless as it is, it affects these kinds of things. We see he's the preexistent one. Jesus is eternal. The, in, the, in the beginning, the Word was already being. And we have to be able to say that. Right? And the Word was with God. There's eternal fellowship represented there, a fellowship that actually is something we're called to reflect as those who bear the image of God and have been saved by Him. And the Word was God, full stop. Jesus is the I Am. Jesus is the second person of the triune Godhead, fully divine. And in so being, He is fully omnipotent. He possesses all power and is able to shoulder the otherwise unbearable punishment of all of our sin and save us. So just in a moment, we're going to sing, Jesus is the perfect picture of the unseen God. And because that's true, we can also sing, Victor, over sin and death you triumphed. Why can we sing those two things? Because the first truth makes the second truth possible. Because of who Jesus is, He brings us a salvation that we need. We don't have Jesus, we don't have salvation. And John starts with the end purpose in mind from the very beginning. Let's just have very clear in our minds the significant, majestic, glorious, uh, worship-driving identity of the Lord Jesus. In the beginning was the Logos. And the Logos was with God. And literally in Greek, and God was the Logos. We need these things. They bring us to a sense of awareness of, of the person of Christ. And in that, ultimately, we find salvation. We'll call it there for today. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word. And we pray that we would be believing in Jesus. We pray that we would be believing in Jesus in truth. Uh, the glories of who he is. The significance of his personhood. Uh, the the uh, right understanding of what it means that you are one God. Almighty God, and you exist in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. May we be trusting in you and believing in you, recognizing your perfect purposes and revelation in the world. While, while you are vast beyond our comprehension, you are the God who makes himself known, and we praise you for that. We ask that we would know you more and follow you more. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.